Welcome to Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Erin Page, and today we're continuing our series here on racism and racial injustice, specifically looking at ways parents and families can engage in the community to fight for racial justice. I am joined by an incredible team of local leaders today. So thankful to have each of you with us this morning. And I'm gonna start with some introductions. If you all will give a little wave as I introduce you, that'd be wonderful. Dr. Angel L. Wilson has 20 years of higher education experience in student and academic affairs and has taught undergraduate and graduate level courses. Most recently, Dr. Wilson served as the Dean of Students at the Oklahoma School of Science and Mathematics. She's a proud alumna of Oklahoma State University, go Cowboys, Kansas State University, and the University of Texas at Austin. She's an occasional stand-up comedian, published poet, and frequent workshop presenter and facilitator on topics related to Black and Latinx college students, student development, social justice and diversity, academic success and support, female empowerment, Black history, life and culture, and cancer survivorship. She is a board member for OKC Artists for Justice, serves on the Star Spencer High School Academy of Hospitality and Tourism Advisory Board, and a member of Oklahoma City Public Schools Student Experience and Equity Committee. Welcome, Dr. Wilson. Mariana Adams is Executive Director of Progress OKC. She has over nine years of public service experience and has worked to revitalize resilient communities through research, policy, innovation, cultural best practices and partnerships, recognizing the strength of collective impact and multifaceted approaches. She has contributed to initiatives focused on housing, employment, healthcare access, public health disparities, and equity-related projects. With experience and understanding of where to focus local investment, she brings growth and vitality to communities that have experienced disinvestment. She holds a master's degree in public administration from the University of Central Oklahoma. At Progress OKC, she forms public-private partnerships and broad cross-sector coordination to strengthen the organization's brand and expand its mission. Welcome, Mariana. Ashley Dixon Oso is Programs and Communications Director for Neighborhood Alliance of Central Oklahoma. She's a graduate of Oklahoma City University, a community development professional, and the architect of several trainings, including revitalization versus redevelopment, rebranding communities, and the 10 commandments of community engagement. Her life goal is to assist cities with creating thoughtful development that provides opportunities for each citizen to experience their best quality of life. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you. Dr. Christina Mushi-Brunt is a wife and mom of three with degrees in public health. She currently works as an independent consultant in program evaluation and grant writing, and is a former college professor and researcher, focusing on health disparities and chronic disease prevention within racial and ethnic minority communities. She's actively involved in her kids' school and district PTA. Her engagement began upon noticing a lack of racial and ethnic diversity within leadership within her children's school communities. She also is a parent representative for the Committee for Racial and Ethnic Minorities, which advocates for diversity and equity within the Moore Public Schools District. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much to each of you for being here this morning. 
for our viewers, if you haven't already watched the first segment of this discussion, we started with a panel of local parents talking about introspection, teaching about race, racism, and anti-racist values in the home. While that introspection and discussion is vital to be ongoing, we also wanted to talk today about how to take those lessons learned and create action in the community. We'll be exploring our education system, small business and black owned businesses, neighbor building and civic and local engagement. I want to start by asking each of you to take a moment to tell us about your area of expertise and how you see race and racism playing a part in that sector of our community. Dr. Wilson, would you start for us this morning? Sure thing, good morning, good morning. Um, I think that, well, Sure, I will start with my expertise. <laughs> uh, like you mentioned in the bio, I have almost 20 years of experience working with students from various backgrounds. Uh, collegiate backgrounds are my specialty. However, most recently I was the Dean of Students at the Oklahoma School of Science and Mathematics. And those of us in Oklahoma City, we know that that is a residential STEM high school. So that's a little bit about um, what I've done and how I've done it. I was drawn to work with students early on because I am what is called child-free, um, not so much childless. I'm very intentional about the language, but I am child-free, but I am a proud aunt and godmother. So uh, working with students and children, uh, that's part of my mission. Um, how I think schools can be helpful or how I think that race plays a part in all of this is that uh, it's very important to know where someone stands, right? Whatever, whether that's the business, the institution, uh, the entity, to me, it is really about what are your core values? What is your, this is to me, it's bigger than mission statements and buzzwords that sound sexy. It is, what do you do when parents aren't there? What do you do when uh, students have genuine questions? What do you do when cameras and lights aren't on? To me, that is just like for people, that is going to be your true advertisement of who you are, because the thing about values is that they don't go away. You can't shed them like you take off your, your clothes, right? Um, so they should be intrinsic to everything that you do, the decisions that you make. And to me, your passion or your commitment to social justice, racial diversity, um, inclusion, all of those things, it should show up without someone consistently having to ask, well, what do you believe about this? Well, you haven't posted a statement about this, because I know right now we've all had that barrage of emails <laughs> in our boxes, things that, just things that you haven't even uh, taken part in anymore. Everyone is sending uh, something about, well, we need you to know that we care about you and we see you. And I'm like, sir, this is, this is for my lawn service. Why are you <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, thank you. <laughs> but, but to me, it, your values will come out no matter what you do. So that's something that uh, when it comes to racial diversity and its impact on not only students and children, uh, but on our everyday lives, that it's something that should come out. I love that. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. Mariana? 
Good morning. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, I've been in the public sector for over a decade, working at the municipal level, the state level, and uh, working on national initiatives as it relates to um, health and um, uh, disparities and economic opportunity. And something that is always um, apparent and sometimes missing from those conversations whether it's focused on um, education, healthcare access, transportation, housing, et cetera, um, are, is a focus on our very stark racial wealth gap in the United States. And so when you think about the net worth of a typical white family, which is nearly 10 times greater than that of a black family, you really need to understand, individuals need to understand and are coming to understand that history matters um, to contemporary inequality. And so it really, the gaps in wealth between white and black households, and we focus there because that is the most stark disparity when you think across all racial groups, um, it reveals the effects of accumulated inequality and discrimination. Um, as well as the differences in both opportunity and power. And so we, we know that the racial wealth gap not only affects those communities of color, but it really affects us as a society, our social and economic well-being as a city, as a state, as a country. And so thinking about, you know, um, how, you know, when you think about equal opportunity, um, I think that we've kind of, diverge from that and really focused on equity um, because we know that not everyone is afforded equal opportunity or participation in certain industries or um, you know, even being able to have the privilege to move to certain neighborhoods. And so we think about how we got here through policy. So you think about the Freedmen's Savings Bank or the massacre at Tulsa Greenwood District or Jim Crow's Black codes or the exemption of the New Deal's labor standards acts is so important to understand how we got here and where we are and where we can go. And so wealth is so important because it's the sum of all of our resources that are available to a household. And it is the, the safety net. When we think about COVID-19 and how it's impacted everyone, everyone um, has been impacted in some way. There are certain communities that were already on the margins and don't have a safety net to keep them from derailing um, or being set back, whether it's their physical health or the economic stability of their community. And so we know that wealth and economic opportunities are so important and it really affords people to, to the conversation that we're having today to be able to choose where they live, um, to, to experience um, life and amenities and services in the way that they choose. Um, it also affords people opportunities to be entrepreneurs, inventors. Um, and so while there isn't a single um, explanation for, for racial wealth gap, that are, there are definitely strategies, whether it's policy, advocacy, programming, that we can put into place to help communities accelerate wealth um, in a very equitable manner. Thank you so much for your wisdom on that, Mariana. Um, it's really great information. Ashley, what about you? First, let me unmute myself. Thank you. 
again for having me. And uh, I'd almost say ditto on what Mariana said, but my my area of expertise, I guess you would say, would be community development. I've been um, doing this for about 12 years in different sectors. And, um, you know, community development, specifically focusing on the built environment and social capacity building um, in, in communities. I, um, I realized, and I heard this some years back from uh, Angela Blackwell from Policy Link, that, you know, the state of inequity that we're in uh, uh, right now is directly related to us uh, races not being able to live next door to one another. So you see uh, the, the, the separation of communities, the sprawl, the people moving further and further away from each other because of our inability or, uh, 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 or not wanting to live next door to people who are not like, uh, uh, like us. So it, 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 it uh, has um, tentacles in all sorts of, uh, all, all parts of our society. You know, when you look at uh, inequity in the school system, uh, food insecurities, uh, as Mariana stated, uh, uh, wealth distribution, uh, entrepreneurship, um, that, that's, I call it an ancient evil, uh, filters down and trickles down throughout uh, all parts of our society we uh, continue to focus on uh, social capacity building, we must also uh, marry it with uh, how we're building our city. You know, I tell people, if you don't focus on how you build your city, your city will build you. So we see lots of uh, health disparities as it relates to where people live. Um, you know, also that's a direct correlation with, um, um, you know, some of the resources being moved out, moved around. Uh, Oklahoma City. So I hope to, as we continue to focus on some of these issues, that we can all come to an understanding and and maybe a solution uh, to to how we uh, equitably distribute uh, our uh, access and resources in Oklahoma City. Such great points, Ashley. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, Christina. What about you? Hi, thank you again for having us and including me in this. I am so excited to hear what everyone has said and I hope after this we can connect because there's so much of what each of you talked about that touches on what I do in my previous work and then currently. Um, I do have a background in public health as mentioned earlier and my research has focused on um, race and health disparities specifically, looking at um, the social determinants of health. So. Um, sort of the, the paradigm that we've used in public health for so long of coming in with our, you know, $4 million federal grants, giving directives, and then walking away isn't acceptable any longer. And so being able to look at um, what communities have to offer and then work within that um, is the type of research that I do. So it's community-based participatory research. Um, but again, looking at, you know, those social determinants, it's deeper than just asking um, individuals in the community to eat healthier or to get more exercise. What does the built environment look like, as Ashley mentioned? Are there food deserts within that community? And then how do we address it in a sustainable manner and one that will, um, will last beyond the four years of grant funding that the university has given or that is utilizing to help this community? How do we do this in a sustainable way? Um, so again, that's 
you know, race and racism certainly plays a critical role in, or understanding race and racism plays a critical role in public health. I have a friend actually um, sort of timely um, yesterday sent me a, a note saying that she works within the CDC. She worked, she's worked there for decades. And there's about a thousand CDC employees who recently signed on a letter to the head of CDC, Dr. Redfield. And one of their key points within this letter was declaring racism as a public health issue. It absolutely is. You look at, you know, just disparities in COVID right now, and um, it's, it's clear to see. So race racism has absolutely played a role in my professional life. On a personal level, I, um, since moving here to Oklahoma about five years ago, have been, you know, really engaged with um, advocacy work within the public education system here. Um, locally and at the district level as a leader in PTA. And then as a parent representative within the Committee for Racial and Ethnic Minorities. And it really, as you mentioned in the, you know, from my bio, it came from looking around at my children's school and realizing um, representation isn't there and representation matters and it makes a difference. And um, I wanted to play a role in that. Such great wisdom from all of you. I'm, I'm just, I'm so thankful to have all of your wisdom right here in, in one panel for parents to learn from, for me to learn from. So thank you guys so much for providing that context as we dive into this conversation about how parents can get engaged in striving for racial justice. Um, that, that education, that framework is so key, uh, being aware of all of the things that you all have talked about, uh, plus much more uh, is so important. But then how do we take that information um, and, and strive to, to make a difference? Um, let's start by talking about our school systems. Dr. Wilson, what are the questions that parents need to be asking of their children's schools about racial equity and some key steps that parents can take in exploring how our schools can be racially equitable? You know, Erin, I think... <laughs> We, we say that, so that question, it seems like would be an easily answerable question. You know, so what is it that you're doing and what are the steps that you're taking? But what we're finding out, not just in 2020, but historically, like my lovely peers have all mentioned, um, there has always been inequity in schooling. Um, whether it is the type of school that you your your kids are allowed to go to um, and attend, whether it is the quality of education and faculty and staff, the resources of those institutions, there's always been this inequity. So a question that they could ask, well, one of the first questions that they should actually ask is, hey, what are, like we mentioned before, what is it that you believe here about student diversity. What is your demographic? We all know that um, research-wise that students do tend to do better when they have a teacher or an educator in front of them that looks like them. Uh, that's not something that we're just making up that we think is um, a new cute phrase to say right now. It, no, that is um, research-driven. So it is asking when you walk into that school, hey, will my student find themselves here? What is it about uh, this location, this environment that will make my student comfortable, will make my student feel amplified, uh, 
will make my student want to participate. Um, I think depending on the age range of the student, uh, there are things where when you, unfortunately, when you're five, six, seven, eight, you really don't have those choices. Your parents make all of those choices for you. Yes, you have a voice and you are allowed to have your opinion. However, <laughs> however, it's, it's very clear that, hey, we're going to make these decisions for you, at least until you get a little bit older, right? And so in that, we need environments where those students who maybe aren't yet quite as developed and mature in their ways of standing up for themselves, can say, hey, I feel welcome here. I feel that I am being celebrated here. So that's, you know, kind of like the, the in initial questions. What are these steps that schools can take? Well, number one, can we please stop being racist? <laughs> I mean, I know that is a, that's a simple statement for us, but that is because it's so intertwined in the fabric of education. Uh, I know that it can't be easily unraveled, but so some of those steps that's, that schools can do, institutions can do is, what does what your hiring look like? Um, are all of your people that you consider when you wave them out on your, on your flag and on your promotional materials, are all of the people who have color or diversity, are they all in your kitchen? Mm, your cafeteria, hello? on your facilities staff, on your uh, custodial landscaping staff, that is really important. So that is a step. The other step is what does your curriculum look like? Is it trauma-based? Is it trauma-informed? Do you have faculty and staff that truly enjoy what they are doing? And what I mean is, do they take other opportunities to learn outside of, I turn my educator hat on when I hit the parking lot and I definitely turn it off when I hit the parking lot again to go home. We go back to what are these intrinsic values that you have? There are things about your heart that you can't get away with, right? Those, those things that are truly us, I think we all, especially as women, we all know that there are certain things that it doesn't matter what situation you're in, they're going to show up right? Just that, that part of you, that thing about you is going to show up. So for these schools, it should be the exact same thing. These steps should not be painstaking. It should not um, come to a, well, the parents got upset or alumni got upset. It should be, no, we want to do what is considered a, a good thing. And we have to be careful and intentional about language right because we can all say well hey we're, we're doing the best that we can well let's define best <laughs> we have to have a universal definition right oh well we're we're ranked as xyz on this or we're ranked as okay but what about on your your equity piece what about on your forecasting for betterment for these students. So all of these things are steps that schools can take. Uh, and I guess in making sure that they really are what they say they are, uh, we, we always want to see students. We, we want students to get in. Yes, retention, recruitment is a huge thing. So if we move through this model, 
right? Just like anything else in life, business, um, how we advance in our careers. You have the recruitment, the initial recruitment, all of the rah-rah to get you there, just like they do with your students. <laughs> the rah-rah, this is why your students should go here, we're the best. Then you, what you want is retention, right? Well, how are you going to retain my student? What is it that are going to be those, those kind of, you gave us the rah-rah, but what happens when we're here? But what the other part that is most important, though, is the matriculation. And what that means is, okay, you got them here, they're here, but how are you moving to get them out of here? Right? Don't get stuck. Well, we only care about recruitment and retention. No. What is happening with the matriculation and promotion? Because again, we know that depending on your age group, it's not always graduation. Even though we do just kind of make that a blanket term, it's like, I'm, I'm sorry, little DJ, you know, you're, you're eight years old, <laughs> you're 12 years old, you are, it's not necessarily a graduation, but it is a promotion to your next grade, right? So we want schools that to take the necessary steps in saying to our students, saying, saying to our children, not only did we fight to get you here, we are fighting to keep you here and we're fighting for you to be successful as we pass you along to that next step. Can I add a quick thought? Yes, mm -hmm. uh, I, I wanted, and, and Dr. Wilson, you, you hit on it and it made me think about something. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you are a black, brown or white parent, um, reflecting on my own experience, it was very, um, shocking that I learned about Oklahoma history mm -hmm. by going to college right. and taking an African-American elective and mm -hmm. first learning about the Tulsa race massacre. And so I think that whether you are a black, brown, or white parent, and I have friends of all races that come to me and say, why are our schools not teaching us mm -hmm. about our own history, mm -hmm. about the land run, and its impact on indigenous and native communities, right. about even uh, Thanksgiving. We sometimes don't think about these events as cultural events, right? That impacted mm -hmm. various communities. Right. And so even taking a step of building on your conversation about the curriculum is how is history being taught here? What does it include? Mm -hmm. And what is being left out? You know, explicitly naming things. Um, you know, we're talking about Indigenous Peoples Day. We're talking about Thanksgiving. Who are we celebrating? Who are we recognizing? And what are we overlooking? Um, and then what cultural activities are there for my students to learn about multi multicultural or multi, you know, culture? Because it's so important. It makes us more well-rounded. It makes us more competitive. It makes us think in a different way. It makes us overall a better and stronger society. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to add it. But and you know what, Mariana, it what's so interesting about that and why we don't do that in general is because we all know that victories are told from the perspective of the victor, right? So why would I share these atrocious things? Why would I include that unless I was forced to? Now we can say, well, history is just history. And it should all be written out. I mean, it should all be available, but we know that that's not what's going to happen. Those, those ugly, um, brutal, savage things that have happened in our world, in our society, how we even got here. 
I mean, we talk about, and I know I'm getting tangential for a second, but we talk about how, uh, well, all of these protests and these, these riots, they're disruptive and they're un-American and they're unpatriotic and that's not how you get your point across. Ma'ams and sirs, didn't y'all turn up on a boat and, and, and with the whole tea party? Wasn't that the initial protest? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that, didn't that happen? <laughs> you know, so just making sure that for us, and also I think challenging your students when you ask them, hey, how was school today? What'd you learn today? But really asking, even if we're not the, you know, the, the former or the having a more formal education on it, but asking them, okay, well, what did you learn? Huh? Well, did they talk about this? Well, did they talk about these other people? Did they talk about what are all of the aspects that they touched on? You know, making sure that our students know that it is okay to question, not that it is disrespectful, not that it is defiant, right? We, again, about intentional language, making sure that, you know, you're being appropriate. But what does that look like to, to ask or request? Hey, well, we're in Oklahoma. Can we talk about Greenwood? We're in Oklahoma. Can we talk about the land run? We're in Oklahoma. Can we talk about some of these mascots and phrasing and logos that, hey, well, where did that come from? And why is that okay? My mommy says that I can't say these things. Why can you, why, why can you say these things? So, but I'm sure we'll talk more about all of this. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. This is such a great points, such great things for us to consider as it relates to our kids and our schools. And Christina, I want to get your input here too. Um, what you would add as your, from your experience as, as a mom, what questions that you started asking when you came into the school district and, and noticed that there wasn't uh, enough racial and ethnic diversity? How, how did you pursue your school system becoming more racially equitable? Mm -hmm. So good. Um, I would agree with everything that's mentioned so far, and I wanted to add like so much stuff to that. Um, but specifically, I think one of the key things that um, I would convey to parents is you have more power than you realize. Mm. You absolutely do. Your voice matters. Administration, it may seem like they're, you know, up here, but they're open to listening and making your voice known. And, and, and you're doing it for not just your children, but many other children, if you're going out and speaking to um, your local bo school board members or your local administration, talk to them about policies and procedures and practices from an equity perspective. Um, this could help identify, um, you know, or root out some of the biases that might exist that they may not see. Um, there is a wealth of data out there um, ProPublica, uh, Pro the um, National Center for National Centers for Education Statistics. You can look, drill down as far as your your individual school and find out what you know. What does the school suspension rate look like? Are more black and brown students being um, disciplined than than white students? Um, what opportunities are there for AP classes and gifted and talented? and then look at disparities there. So there's a lot of data you can, and, and I think that, I, I mentioned that one as just a researcher and scientist, but it's sometimes that's what's needed to 
be able to have those conversations with administration is to say, this isn't just an emotional pers you know, um, perspective that I'm bringing. There's data that backs up my concerns in terms of what you're doing in policy-wise, procedure-wise, and program practice-wise, and how can we work together as parents and as administration, as a school, to address these issues. Talk to your teachers more about, um, I, um, Dr. Wilson mentioned this, and Mariana a little bit as well. Talk to your teachers about what they're teaching in the classroom. Talk to your kids. One example that I have that I um, that has stuck out with me in fifth grade, my son was um, there, you know, progressing through U.S. history, and they were on slavery. And he came home and he said, "I'm just really uncomfortable talking about this because I feel like everyone's looking at me and the other only other brown person in this class." Um, and it's just, and we've had conversations from when they're young about you know, their history, they're aware of it. Um, but he felt uncomfortable. So he brought home a Thursday folder in his Thursday folder, um, an assignment. They, they get all of their assignments that they've worked on in class um, in that folder. And so I'm looking through it, checking his grades, seeing how things are going. And there was one, one worksheet that was on the slave trade and the title of it was Diversity Sales to America. And it blew my mind. I thought, wow, this, this is concerning. And I talked to Elias, you know, my son about it and, you know, asked him and he, he got an A on the assignment or whatever, but it was just this title. And so I met with the teacher and just said, can I see the book? We don't see the, the history book that he's using because they don't bring it home. May I see the book? May I see the teacher book? And then from there, you know, discuss with her, you know, what was problematic about this title of diver and it was, you know, as you can tell why it would be problematic. And then, so my son and I encouraged my son and the two of us wrote a letter to the publisher of the, of the textbook. And so it gives, you know, these are ways that you can as a parent, um, one, advocate and, you know, for your child on your child's behalf, but then also include them in the process of doing this. Um, asking your teachers and school districts to go beyond just the heroes and the holiday curriculum that they typically do every year. I mean, my kids have gone through the second grade and they do a, you know, Martin Luther King timeline that focuses on their own timeline, you know, connecting those two. Um, so they know Martin Luther King, they know Rosa Parks, but they don't know, there's so much richness um, within just the BIPOC, you know, Black Indian or Indigenous people of color history that is missing. Tulsa Massacre, I, we're not from Oklahoma, so we were definitely not taught about it. But when I learned about about, you know, when we first moved here, I had friends who had no idea and they're from Oklahoma and didn't know that this had occurred. That's, that's, that's disheartening as a parent um, to, to know that there's such a, you know, rich history that is being lost and and so having um so the questions i would absolutely ask you know what what's being taught what's in the curriculum how are your policies and practices um, and procedures impacting black and brown children um but not being afraid to use your voice that is that is beautiful, Christina. I, I love uh, I love your your example of how you not only advocated for your son but you included him in that process. You, you're a mom inspiration. Thank you for for sharing that. Um, 
I want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk with Ashley about neighbor and community building. I love Neighborhood Alliance of Central Oklahoma has a stance that safe and healthy neighborhoods are places that provide opportunities, resources, and an environment that children, youth, and adults need to maximize their life outcomes. I love that word, maximize. Ashley, will you expand on how local families can engage in neighbor and community building and why that's such a key piece of this discussion about seeking racial justice and equity? Thank you. You know, communities and neighborhoods, given the right elements, are typically self-sufficient, right? They are a self-contained ecosystem um, that actually, in back in the day, uh, uh, supplemented or subsidized social services. So um, there were places where seniors could age in place, uh, single mothers could have assistance with their children, um, crime prevention was the responsibility of the, of the whole community, and uh, you know they, they, they were the newspaper, they were everything. I mean you got your, your news from your neighbor, you knew you were in the know because of your neighbor, if you're going out of town you told them, they pull your trash cans back. Um, this is a self-sufficient community. So the challenge now is when resources uh, have been withheld, are withheld for, from neighborhoods and communities, uh, it puts those individuals at a disadvantage. So um, um, there's, a, there's an article called The Liturgy of Scarcity and Abundance. And, and the question basically is, is, is scarcity, is it a naturally occurring uh, a phenomenon or is it man-made? You know, and um, we, we realize and we understand that it is man-made. So when you create these communities with, um, with uh, uh, disparities, you're, we are creating uh, the lack uh, that we have. So, you know, what I would say as far as how people can affect change in their own community, you know, we are working at the policy level to change policies uh, to affect the systemic racial uh, disparities in the community. But what you can do at the grassroots level is simply get involved in your neighborhood. Um, it, uh, it can be what it once was in the inner city and in some of those uh, uh, communities. And I tell people all the time when they call me to go and, and organize a community or help them to organize, I tell them, listen, every neighborhood is actually organized. It may be organized chaos, but there is a flow to it right? It, there is an ecosystem at work um, and you just have to kind of pull away the pieces and see what's what in, in that community. Um, but we want healthy, uh, we want healthy neighborhoods. We want, we want neighborhoods that have access. We want neighborhoods with great schools as anchors once again, which, we, which we're losing um, in, in, in the inner city neighborhoods. So I would encourage families to get involved. If, if you, the, at the very basic level. All I ask people to do is simply get to know your neighbors. Mm -hmm. The three in front of you and the ones on either side. That's it. Go and talk to them. Get out of your house, right? Um, you know, social neighborhoods are safer neighborhoods. The, uh, I, I, and, and, and when you know your neighbor, you know their children, you know who's supposed to be at the house, who's not supposed to be there, you know when they get home. This this starts to rebuild the fabric of our communities that has been lost. Um, 
as I said, we're working at a policy level, we're working on the built environment, which is basically uh, uh, our houses, amenities, communities that support health. But I remember listening to um, um, the president of the Kellogg Foundation about stress. And she said that, you know, um, it would be preferable not to live in a community or inner city community that has these disparities because it creates stress and it affects health. So she was encouraging people to move out, which I totally understand, but, but that is not the option for everyone. So we have to work on our own communities, rebuilding the fabric and, uh, and framework of those communities so that everyone feels welcome and supported. Um, so that's my suggestion, get involved in your neighborhood association. If there's not one, you know, just on your block, organize your block. I call myself my block. I, um, I, I call myself the block queen. I, I consider myself the queen of my block. You know, that's, that's a, a, a title I've given myself. But you know, I, I make it a point to, to, to acknowledge people on my block that should be there, that I don't know if they should be there, you know, so on and so forth. So it goes a long way to rebuilding our communities. Um, so yeah, that's, that, that's my answer to that question. That's great, Ashley. I love, yeah, start, start where we are. Get engaged with the people around us. That's a great place to start. Become Black Queen, absolutely. Yep. Become Black Queen. <laughs> I'm going to add, I'm going to add that title. Uh, Mariana, at Progress OKC, you support and help revitalize Oklahoma City communities that have experienced significant disinvestment. You also recently provided your expertise in a roundtable discussion with Governor Stitt and community leaders on the challenges facing Black-owned and small businesses. Will you talk about some of those challenges, how as a community we can better support Black-owned and small businesses, including things like access to mentorships or career exposure for our youth, and then the part that families need to play in this effort? Absolutely, absolutely. And I would be remiss if I did not quickly mention the history, the beautiful history, because I think that's so important that we acknowledge that uh, black brown histories, although with any community there can be pain and suffering, but there's a lot of joy. And I think about Deep Deuce in Oklahoma City and the vibrancy that was once there with music, entertainment, entrepreneurship, um, so many things. And so whenever anyone goes to Midtown, you know, there is a, a area that was once there, and I, it's still the historic deep deuce, but just take time to learn about that history because it's so important. And so to your question, um, one, I would say, you know, uh, black owned, minority owned firms are not synonymous with uh, being small. And so they, there are various sizes of, of businesses from small to, to large corporations thinking about locally owned small businesses. You know, um, I think that for a, a really rich experience that I have had um, is, is going to the different festivals that are across Oklahoma City. I think Erin, I was previously talking to you about that and getting to know and experience culture through food and through um, music. And so I think about Fiestas Las Americas um, I think about um, even one OKC in Northeast Oklahoma City, the Asian Cultural Festival. So getting out and, and participating with your family in those events, you get to know your city, you get to know your neighbors in a very authentic and different way. 
ways in which that people can support black businesses, knowing acknowledges that black businesses are, their consumer is not just black, right? And so um, supporting them, going to, to eat at restaurants, buying materials. Um, there was a, a, um, uh, a directory that was circulating here locally about black owned businesses, um, whether they were doing uh, apparel or marketing or accounting or you name it across so many different industries. And I thought that that was great because I get a lot of questions on, okay, we want to support, but where do we go, right? And so uh, Northeast Oklahoma City has historically been an African-American uh, community, and there's so many Black businesses there, but there are Black businesses that span all of Oklahoma City metro area. And so, you know, taking the time to find that directory and supporting those businesses intentionally, um, and I think that that's a great step. We just, you know, had the Blackout Tuesday, um, there were millions of dollars nationally that were spent in, in Black-owned businesses, and those businesses are able to circulate those dollars within their communities and really contribute to that, their community economy. So it's just so important, and it, it pays forward in a way um, in which that is really priceless. I, I'm really passionate about youth, and so my two cents there would be for any parent, whether the school is offering a program or whether there's a uh, apprenticeship in your community, please connect your youth, especially in high school, or even sometimes there's middle school opportunities, but definitely in secondary education to apprenticeship programs that give students the chance to learn about advanced occupational and employment skills, entrepreneurship, give them that exposure. And something that I have been having a conversation with, with career techs and with um, employers that are having these apprenticeship programs is coupling those opportunities with financial education and financial practices. And so if you are giving them, if they're receiving wages or um, anything like that, teaching them about accounting and management and savings and planning in a very real world um, scenario, and so, you know, people best learn when they're actually going through that experience. And so please utilize those opportunities um, to teach them that. And for parents to seek out those opportunities, especially many people don't know um, that there is a match savings program in Oklahoma City. There are nonprofits and banks that offer match saving programs specifically for youth. And so if youth put in a dollar that entity will match it a dollar or two dollars. And then they can utilize the, those funds for, uh, to start a business, uh, to invest in higher education. So utilizing those resources and those programs, the earlier the better, so that we create this pipeline. Uh, we often talk about the school to, to prison pipeline, this school to entrepreneurship and ownership pipeline that is so needed um we have those resources here and so I'm, I'm happy to share those afterwards community action agency has a phenomenal program um you have coweb has a apprenticeship program where they will pay you to gain those skills and so taking advantage of, of those resources seeking those resource those those programs out so that youth get those type of experiences and i know that there's some barriers there are barriers for certain individuals when it comes to transportation, et cetera, and so forth. Um, I know that OKCPS 
has been creative with getting their youth that are working bus passes and, and things like that. So I, I want to say people are working towards really trying to figure out how we can create a holistic economic um, opportunity experience for both youth and adults. We need people to participate. And so I encourage you to get involved. I love that you uh, said intentionality, Mariana, whether that is about supporting Black-owned businesses or parents getting their kids engaged with entrepreneurship opportunities, or like we've talked about, attending those cultural festivals just to broaden what you and your kids um, are experiencing in the community. Such, such great information. Thank you so much. Um, I want to talk about civic engagement. As I know, you guys are all a wealth of knowledge on, on that subject. Um, beyond the importance of voting and, and participating in elections, there are lots of opportunities for parents locally to get engaged civically or with programs or nonprofits. For parents who are seeking opportunities to get engaged civically or locally, um, specifically to fight racial injustice in the community, what are some important first steps or opportunities to look into? Christina, would you start us off? Um, sure. Um, so as a parent, one of the, you know, most, or the easiest ways to do this is, that I found for myself, is to get involved in your child's school. That's a great um, space for advocacy. Um, be present, be involved, be active. It's gonna, going to obviously look a little bit different this coming school year given the circumstances, but joining your um, parent-teacher association, your PA, um, PTA, and becoming a leader in that. You know, PTA, I don't think, you know, some people don't realize it's the oldest and the largest child advocacy organization in the country. They have um, a wealth of resources and um, that schools, local schools can utilize to help their schools um, in terms of advocacy. And there is actually a, uh, an air, uh, focus or an area of focus specifically on diversity and inclusion and equity within PTA. And I'm seeing a lot more um, engagement and questions and people are more interested in that this particular year than I have in previous years. And so there's opportunities for you to work at the local level within your school, um, just starting there as a parent. Um, our family has participated in several rallies and marches just as a family in the past couple of months, um, making those decisions. Sometimes it's right for your family, sometimes it's not. There were some that we attended only with our 14-year-old son and some we did as a family because they were focused on children. <clears throat> so them, you know, seeing that they have a voice, even if they are young, they do have a voice and they are able to get out there and, you know, put their voices out there. Um, Another thing we've done is campaign for candidates that we believed in, ones who back, you know, public education or, you know, had clear statements about race and you know, racial justice and equity and um, inclusion. And so sitting down as a family and kind of reviewing that and then backing that candidate and, you know, with a couple in 2018, there were some teachers that, lots of teachers who ran that year. There was one we really believed in and we, took the kids and went knocked on doors. And so they get to be a part of the process more than just seeing it from, you know, the outside, um, you know, taking our kids to the polling station with us and seeing the process again. Um, you know, so there's, uh, there's a lot of different ways to engage your, or get your kids involved, include your kids um, 
incivic engagement. Um, it's more of, for us, it's, we can talk the talk as much as we want, um, but until they see us actually walking it and doing it, and we're, you know, our ch children's best example of this work. We want them to learn it from us and not necessarily, you know, everyone else. Those are great suggestions, Christina. Thank you. Ashley, I know your kiddos are, are still little, but what would, you, what would you add that you are looking forward to engaging them in, either civically or, or in the community as they get older? You know, I was blessed to have a mother who kept us busy as children. You know, we were involved in quite a bit. Um, and uh, even in the surroundings, we grew up in an in inner city neighborhood that had some challenges. And, um, um, but she was, um, she was very intentional in making sure we were part of, uh, we had golfing lessons, orchestra. Uh, I was, I was, had the great opportunity to start at class in SAS the first year it opened. And um, um, so she, she, she kept us busy, but I, you know, I, one, one thing that impacted me the most, I think when I was a young person is I was in Big Brothers Big Sisters, because I'm the oldest child. And my big sister actually happened to be uh, Shelly Looper, who is Miss Clara Looper's daughter. So I had the opportunity to see firsthand a civic engagement. She took me uh, all around, everywhere she went, I went. And um, it, 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 words and what you say impact a child, but I think what they see impacts them more. I think uh, the idea of mentorship that's sometimes lost in our community, I think uh, uh, we need to continue to support those types of efforts because to this day, there are some, there are some goals that I had as a child based on what, I, what she'd shown me, you know, and what I'd seen, how she lived her life that I wanted to have, uh, I wanted to reach in my own uh, adult life. So um, I, if, if I had the opportunity to, uh, to connect my children to, to, to a mentorship program or to someone who was involved in civic engagement, I absolutely will when they, when, when they come of age. Um, I, I think it's important generally to most children, but especially those that do not have access uh, to seeing something different than what they're used to. Uh, I think providing that access allows them to dream and strive for something different and people children need something to hope for because if they don't have something to hope for they have nothing to lose and that is a very dangerous spot to be in no those are powerful words ashley thank you for that dr wilson what would you add you know i i actually was gonna say both of those things so again my peers are they're fabulous <laughs> um i i agree um that that service that service mindedness that civic mindedness it starts in the home it starts with you know whenever you were young what did your parents talk about what did your siblings if you have siblings what were they involved in what were they talking about what were they doing um there is there is definitely something to be said about um I guess getting our students, our children, uh, getting them access to different things. And Ashley talked about that when she said the about the communities and the neighborhoods and uh, making sure that you know your neighbors. Something that I also find helpful is asking your students, your children, hey, well, some of your best friends or the people that you hang out with, what are some things that they do? 
or even as the adult going to talk to those parents or those other adults about, hey, you know, I see you around here or our kids hang out together or I hear, you know, our kids are always talking about the other kid in a positive way. <laughs> um, what are what are some things that y'all are into? You know, what, hey, how do you spend your time? What are some activities that maybe I should get my kid involved in? Or is there something that you want to know about that uh, you want to get your kid involved in? Or, hey, we can do these two things together. So I do think staying aware, staying up on current events, what's, what's trending, I think that uh, we will definitely see, especially within the next few months and next year, I think we're going to see a lot of involvement in a lot of justice-based organizations. So whether uh, those students and parents, whether they come up with their own uh, or they just latch on to these movements that have already been established. I think, and I, I'm really interested to see how that's going to look in the long run. Great, great perspective. Mariana, what about you? You know, I always encourage, and, and my son is very familiar with, with participating, um, and, and I'll echo what has been said, participating in the process, with whatever that looks like, you know, visiting our city hall, visiting our, our state capitol. I say, These, this is our house, <laughs> you know, this is, this is our house. I want you to feel welcome here and it to be natural to, to come here. And so interfacing with our representatives, you know, knowing who our, our city councilor is, um, our school board representative, our state reps, senators, representatives, um, all the way up to Congress, knowing all of those folks. And I know that it can be challenging, especially, you know, um, either attending meetings or understanding the meetings because sometimes there's a lot of jargon, technical jargon that's utilized during those meetings um, that uh, for it, that those terms just aren't, they're not said in layman's terms. But what I would say is know who your representatives are and follow their pages on social media, follow their pages on social media, just as a bare minimum, because you're gonna see what their values are and the issues that they care about and that they're willing to publicly take a stance on um, or issues that they just, they won't consider. And so even if you're, you care about, for my son, for example, he is very passionate about people that experience homelessness, what's gonna happen, right? And so he has written letters to, to our representatives and, and ask them like, hey, are there resources? Or I seen this guy, well, he's seven, you know, he's using the seven-year-old term, but you know, I seen this guy and I feel bad for them. What are you going to do, right? What are you doing about this? And so connecting him in that way, because youth care about so many different things. I don't care if it's about littering or uh, having new textbooks, whatever it is, there is a, a official that is making a decision that impacts you. And so getting them connected to that official, building that relationship, making sure that those officials know you by name, or at least following the issues that they are championing and rallying for, because they are rallying for something, right? And so I think that there just needs to be more, um, as constituents, more visibility and more participation in civic engagement. And I understand that there are some barriers to that, but they're going to continue to be barriers unless we push and say, hey, these are th the things that we want to see. And even thanking them for taking a stance on things. There isn't one representative that I agree with wholeheartedly 100%, but 
But when they take a stance on something or when they allocate funding for something, I recognize them in that way too, because sometimes those are tough decisions. So knowing what's going on, and I would say whenever you see gaps, run for office. You know, we need to see more people that either look like us or experience life like us running for office. Um, and us getting out and supporting them, us knocking doors, us making phone calls, us raising funds and giving funds. Because, you know, when those decisions are made, some, uh, many times those decisions are made through one lens, right? And our state and our country is so diverse. And when we look at our representation, it many times does not reflect that. And so it really is on us to run for office to support candidates, to Christina's point, um, of those that we can get behind. And if there aren't, then it's up to you. You be that change. You run for office. You organize and we'll be with you. I love that. That's, that's perfect. Um, I want to wrap up our discussion today with um, kind of a look toward the future. I, I'd love for you to each touch on where you believe effective lasting change really begins as it relates to eradicating systemic racism and racial injustice in the community. And maybe whether you're seeing any glimmers of hope that you'd like to share. Ashley, will you start for us? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I do see glimmers of hope. I think that change happens uh, inside on all levels, governmental, systemic, and um, grassroots. Um, I think, though, the challenge today is that people must understand that in order to balance the scales, power must shift. And I'm, I'm not sure if people are aware of, of, the, of how uncomfortable that may be. <laughs> would take to really affect change in a lot of these areas what 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 we'd all have to uh you know do to make that transition i do see glimmer of hope uh, a glimmers of hope in in our youth um youth and just people in general i think uh, i think although the system uh, in a lot of ways is broken and, and has some challenges as it relates to race and, and discrimination i think that these generations are, are, are far enough removed from some of those, as I call it, those ancient evils that um, they are willing to overlook. Um, well, maybe that's not the best word, but they're, they're willing to partner to work on social change. Um, they're used to seeing each other in each other's spaces now. It's, it's no longer the the, 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 at, for the most part, is no longer the, the, the age of uh, segregation where you don't see people of color in, in your arenas of, uh, of society. So um, that's a step. That's a step. And, and, and um, I, I'm encouraged that, that we can continue those efforts uh, 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 here in Oklahoma City and, and throughout the United States. Christina, what about you? Um, <clears throat> I think as I mentioned before, it, it begins local. It begins in the home. It begins in your home. Um, it begins in your friendship circles, having conversations, having dialogue, being open to um, hearing and speaking. Um, it's, you know, and from there, your community as a whole. Um, 
and then you know just working out but it does begin in the home and setting the tone for this at, at, at the, within your home and in your friendship circles having conversations just dialogue i think that's there's so much noise right now <laughs> so much noise um and so being able to sort of sift through all of that to find truth and being able to speak truth to one another um you know and that's it's it's hard it's hard work um we talk with our kids um so a lot of just what we do as a family is is rooted in faith it's it's rooted in our faith and um and we talk about hope and what hope is it's that confident expectation so it's it's more than just oh i really hope something happens i'm confidently expecting that this will change and so that's the that's sort of the um lens that we um we talk about this with our kids is is it going to is it going to change tomorrow? No. Um, but to see my 14 year old, you know, black son who, you know, is no longer the cute little, I still think he's cute, but you know, he's, he's no longer the cute little guy. He's, you know, five foot 10 and he's 14 years old. Um, this is real. This is real for, for us as, as parents, but it's also becoming real for him. And he's hopeful. You know, we, we stood out, marched, you know, together, um, a month ago, month and a half ago, and he said, Mom, I really hope that I don't have to do this with my kids. And I said, okay, we're confidently expecting that this is going, you're making a difference in that. Um, so I am, I'm, I do see glimmers of hope. I think that there's dialogue and it, it just feels, I don't know if, you know if anyone else feels this, it just feels a little bit different this time around. Confidently expecting things to change. I love that. Dr. Wilson, what would you add? I was, I actually was thinking the same thing about the, that hope is confident expectation. Y'all have definitely, all, all of y'all have dropped these little jewels and I'm trying to keep from writing them down so I don't move and make it a distraction, but I'm like, y'all need to put these on t-shirts and just walk around like, and do that thing. Um, wow. Okay. So the glimmers of hope. I think it is, I think it is, like I said before, it is very important to be intentional about our language, about our expectations, about our goals. And so it is totally, I think it's very affirming for not only ourselves, but for our students, our children, that we can say on some days, you know what, I don't know, this might not be such a good day. I'm not really you know, this day hasn't turned out how I wanted it to do. Um, but you know what, we, there's always tomorrow. There's always a, a, a reawakening, a renewal, um, a revitalization in tomorrows, right? And so for me, uh, it's, it's just really critical that we, yes, we hold out for hope, right? Uh, things that are unseen, the things that we can't touch that aren't quite tangible. We definitely have to have those glimmers of hope. And at the same time, um, hold on to what is, uh, what is tangible, what is real to us, uh, what is actually happening. I think it's, it's okay for us to have these conversations. Yes, they're uncomfortable. Yes, they can be difficult and challenging, but they are so extremely necessary. Um, not only with our peers, our colleagues, family members, but with our children, with our students, with our families um, that, hey, let's, let's really get in the muck 
and be able to talk about these things. I think that one thing that we know across centuries is that young people are more resilient than we ever give them credit for. It doesn't matter which generation it is. We're always, well, they're not going to be able, so we use these words, or we don't talk about, we don't talk about that. And you'd be surprised what they're able to withstand and what they actually understand. So I, I share all of that to talk about those glimmers of hope. Um, but moving forward, how does our future look? Um, I, I am hoping for good things. I am hoping for progress. I am hoping for uh, something to be different that this, this time of revolution, because it really has been, it's been revolutionary, uh, that we will keep this momentum uh, that people will really back up with their actions, what they say that they are about and what they stand for. Uh, personally, I believe that it, we have a long way to go. There is, a, yes, we can see some, some glimmers of hope on the horizon, but there's definitely a long way to go. Um, because until we get universal definitions of what it means to have prosperity, what it means to be happy, what it means to have justice, what it means to um, be able to be the fullness of yourself, to always be able to bring the fullness of yourself into every single situation, which we know, um, I don't even know these women, but I'm sure that we all can agree that it's not always safe for us to bring our full selves into every situation, right? So making sure that these types of environments that atmosphere is created where that can happen, not only for us, but for our children. Um, I think about something that Ashley said, and I, I definitely wanted to, to touch on this. She talked about how uh, she was listening to uh, a Kellogg speaker and how that idea of, hey, well, if you are in environments and neighborhoods that are stressful, you need to get out of those. <laughs> and <clears throat> although that is ideal, as, as Ashley mentioned, what happens when we move away from those environments because we're, you know, they're considered stressful because of whatever disparities um, and lack of resources and access, but we move into those things. I think it's, this is really important to me. We move into those situations where we believe that it's better, it's shinier, it's quieter, it's better, whatever that means for you. Again, universal definitions, right? but we move into those spaces and we experience the exact same stress. Yeah. So it may not look like, well, I live around, as Mariana mentioned, well, uh, in my area, I tend to see lots of home, the homeless population. Well, just because you move away from that, what if now you are being over militarized and policed in your own neighborhood? So you have HOAs, your, your children can't go to the pool because they're constantly asked, do they live in this neighborhood, right? So that weighing out of the pros and cons of, oh, okay, well, yes, move away from this stress, but stress is relative, right? Stress is subjective. So you can move away from these things that are typical negative things into a different situation that we are told and promised are different and better, but not necessarily, right? The definition uh, changes. So for me, uh, I think about 
that draws me to one of my friends, uh, one of her sons, and I, it, it just it just hit me when when Ashley brought that up about that the stress and moving away. But one of her sons, she she works hard. She's an entrepreneur. She's a restaurateur, and she does the best that she can for her her children. Um, she exposes them to all of these things. They have access and resources. She's married, and yet even to this day, he plays sports. He's on a soccer team. Parents are they're married. All of this, all of these, you know, this what is considered a high quality of life right? Middle class, astute, all of these things, the, the affluence that we hear about. And even to this day, her son can play on a soccer team. And whenever they play this one certain team, I'm not going to mention any names, uh, but whenever they play this one certain team, evidently it is like clockwork that her child will be called the N-word multiple times on the field. This is today like literally last month. <laughs> and for him to say as a 14 year old, well, mom, don't get worked up about it. That They always do that. They're just trying to get to me. You know what I mean? So for me, that stress of the, the stress of, of what you know versus the stress of what you don't know, right? That promise for greater, that promise for better. Um, that That is what gives me those tinges of, yeah, not quite. It's not quite done baking. <laughs> I mean, we're getting there. It's cooking, but it's not quite done baking. So I look to the future to, um, for us to, it's going to be a constant struggle. It's going to be a continuous fight. And for us to not lose heart, for us to not get tired. Um, well, I'll put it this way. You can get tired. You can take a break, but you got to get back up. It's like a nap. You know, like this fight for revolution, it's a nap. You have to take a nap because you need your energy, you need your strength, but we need you right back out there helping us make those changes and, and fighting for whatever the good fight is to you. Such great perspective, Dr. Wilson. Thank you for sharing. Mariana, your final thoughts? You know, I would say hope is contagious and, and what I've realized that makes this feel a little bit different is that courage is courageous too. And, and so I'm seeing um, folks um, from so many backgrounds and so many different spaces and industries, whether it's technology or real estate or um, health, having these conversations um, and, and embracing the fact that um, whatever position or role that they're in, that they have a responsibility to contribute to positive social and economic change. And I'm seeing a willingness to do that. And so I have folks that are having these conversations, but they're saying, now, what do I do? Now, what do I actually do? And so I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And so um, we do have a long way to go, but I feel like we have more people that are actually in, in it with us um, and are having these conversations with their families, with their friends, with their colleagues, and to, to Ashley's point, are figuring out how they can systemically, from their position, with the resources that they have, make a sustainable, impactful change for us to, to move forward as a society. And I'm, I'm encouraged by that. I really am. My cup is full. 
Thank you. Thank you so much to each of you for, for lending your time this morning, for sharing your invaluable wisdom and insight with, with parents. Um, these conversations are, are so vital. And I am personally always grateful for an opportunity to learn from each of you and know other parents will be as well. Thank you for your leadership in, in each of your sectors and in our community. Um, I'm just really grateful for, for the time that you've spent here this morning. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks everyone for watching. Join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.